this book was unique in that it's further along in the 20th century than I've written so far. So I actually was able to interview a woman who was a debutante in 1958, and she was actually brought out and presented to the queen. She didn't end up having a full season, but she was able to give me a lot of detail about the training that they had beforehand, because there would have been a very specific curtsy that they had to learn, which you would have gone to one specific woman, uh, Madame Vacani. To learn that. Yep. And she she told me about, you know, walking into the room where you're presented to the Queen and to Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, as he was then. And there was a white dot on the floor where you would have stopped, and that's where you were meant to make your curtsy, and sort of all the pressure that went along with that. Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Hello, and welcome to a new episode of Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. On this episode, we're chatting with best-selling authors Julia Kelly and Genevieve Graham, both of whom not only write popular historical fiction, but who also have gone out of their way the last couple of years to establish online series promoting other writers. And hasn't that been an amazing thing for all of us watching on this side of the screen? Julia, who was raised in the States but now lives in England, is best known for her sweeping 20th century fiction set in her adopted country. And Genevieve, who lives in Canada, has established herself as one of the foremost novelists bringing lesser-known chapters of Canadian history to light. I'm joined today by author and Friends in Fiction co-host Kristen Harmel who also writes historical fiction, and I know we're both really looking forward to this discussion. We are thrilled to have Julia and Genevieve with us today, talking with us about breathing life into history and being good literary citizens. I am Ron Block. And I'm Kristen Harmel. Let me tell you a bit more about Julia and Genevieve before we bring them on. Julia Kelly is the best-selling author of 10 novels, including the brand new The Last Dance of the Debutante, which just came out. She also hosts Ask an Author with Julia Kelly over on Facebook, where she interviews other authors live and takes audience questions. Genevieve Graham is the best-selling author of seven novels, including the upcoming Bluebird, which comes out the first week of April. Like Julia, she hosts a Facebook chat series focusing on other authors, in her case, historical fiction authors. Both women not only write sweeping, immersive novels of their own, but they help readers find other authors and books to fall in love with, too. And I think that's such incredible work. First up today is Julia, joining us from England. Julia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This is very exciting. I get to see two good friends and, and hang out for a bit and talk books. We love it. We love it. I I love I love the term good literary citizens. I think there should be a badge that we can all wear above. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so anyway, Julia, we are so glad to have you here. First up, can you tell our listeners a bit about the last dance of the debutante? I know that last year when we talked, I you talked a little bit about it and I was so excited and now it's out in the world so everybody's going to get a chance to see it. Absolutely. Well, The Last Dance of the Debutante focuses on the fictional women of 1958, uh, which was the last year that debutantes were presented to Queen Elizabeth at court. So this is the end of an era, a, a dying tradition. And so it focuses on a young woman named Lily, who is sort of at a crossroads in her life. Um, her family very much wants her to do the season, to be presented, to go to all the balls and have a coming out party. And she's she's happy to go along with that, but she's sort of wondering what else there is in her life and what could be what could be lying, you know, down the road for her. And through some of the women that she meets 
in her debutante season that really gets thrown into relief. So she has some ambitions of her own. And the question is, is she actually going to pursue those or will she be tugged over to the more traditional side? And, and of course, because it's one of my novels, uh, there's a big family secret at the middle of it um, because I love a family Yay. secret. And so that sort of all unfolds while Lily is is also making these big decisions about her own future in, in sort of a, a coming of age story. Wonderful. And what was it about this particular chapter in history that pulled you in? And, and so you knew that this was what you were going to tackle? You know, I, I've always been interested in women at transitional points in history. And I think for me, 1958 is really interesting because it's far enough away from the war that a young woman like Lily wouldn't, she would have been born during the war and she wouldn't have any memory of, maybe she would she would know um, some of the experiences she had during austerity, but she wouldn't have had the same experiences as a woman who would have been recruited into, for instance, the Wrens or one of the other services. So there's sort of that. And then also ahead of her, um, she doesn't know this, but we know this, of course, that the swinging 60s and the second wave feminist movement and various other really significant movements in history that the sexual revolution are all right on the horizon. And so I think it's interesting, this sort of idea of a dying institution of major change happening, um, even in, in Britain's elite society, which most, most of us would sort of never have access to. Um, but I think it's an interesting way of looking at a period of change in, in women's lives in Britain. Oh, that makes nice. a lot of yes. sense. Oh, I love it. Yeah. You know, Julia, as you know, I often write about France where I used to live. And of course, as we've said, you write about Britain. I have to admit, I'm kind of jealous that you get to live in this spot you're so passionate about and that provides such a fantastic theater for this beautiful kind of historic storytelling you do. Could you tell us a little bit about your journey to living there? Sure. Well, it's one of the big questions I get asked because, of course, I don't sound like I'm from Britain, um, even though I, I am actually half British, which is part of the story. So my mother is English. Uh, she was born and raised in Liverpool and moved over to the U.S. where she met my father. So I was um, raised in Los Angeles. And I've always had the want to move over to the UK. And it sort of never really came about until my parents and my sister all moved. My sister, because um, she met my now brother-in-law. So they're, they're now married um, and living in, living in England, although he's Scottish, a very proud Scotsman. And my parents are living in England as well. So I realized I was the, the last in uh, New York at the, last, at the time, so the last in the US. And I moved to be closer to them. And really, it was moving to the UK that that prompted my interest in especially 20th century British history. Um, I was living in an area of London where there are a lot of memorials, where there are a lot of memories of World War II. And I think as you learn a little bit more about the city, it's very hard not to realize how shaped it is by the experience of World War II. Of course, it was heavily bombed, as a lot of cities in, in the UK were. Um, and so, I, you know, I will admit I'm sort of guilty of walking down the street, seeing a sort of 60s or 70s piece of architecture in the middle of, a you know, beautiful row of Georgian or Victorian homes and assuming that it was bombed. But in a lot of cases, that was actually yeah. what happened. So it's very hard to ignore the history of this city. And, and why would you want to ignore it? It's just yeah. fascinating. And so I've really been lucky in being able to draw a lot of inspiration from that. That's awesome. Were you writing about England at all before you moved there? I was. I, I was a historical romance novelist. So I, remember, I was writing about yeah. Victorian England. Yep. So I wrote about Victorian England and also um, Victorian Scotland, uh, Edinburgh, and really loved that. That was where I did my degree work, um, was all in the Victorian era. Um, but moving up a series of, of decades, I should say, is really interesting because, you you know, the more I think you study history and you write about history, the more you realize that not that long has not that much time has passed between these, you know, distinct separate eras. So, you know, World War II, the Victorian era to our, our contemporary time, it really is fascinating that women whose families, you know, in, in 1958 wanted them to be debutantes, they would have absolutely had ties to that sort of Victorian era idea of what a young woman's uh, life should be. And if you think of that contrasted with how, 
wild things get in the 1960s and how much more freedom women have. It really is incredible that some of their grandmothers and their great grandmothers must have just thought the world is going to hell in a handbasket because it's just so much is changing. Well, it's so funny to think about it that way, because when people write historical fiction about our time period, right, they're going to think like, oh, well, not that much time passed between World War II and, you know, the coronavirus days or whatever. Absolutely. Well, and you hear from time to time things like, um, I hope I don't mess this up, but things like, you know, when when uh, it was the 1980s or, or the 1990s, it was the same distance from, uh, from the 1960s as it is now to the 1980s. And you just sit there and you, your brain just doesn't want to do the math. <laughs> yes. That's no, strange. you're 100% right. <laughs> it's so strange. But at, at the same time, I think it makes it very interesting because it, it feels at once very recognizable, um, but very distant, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I love this whole idea now thinking about what future historical fiction writers are going to yes. say about our time. <laughs> A lot of it is tr- based on tragedy, but I think yeah. that what they'll do is come up with all of these stories of survival yeah. uh, of people that lived through the tragedy. So it'll be kind of yeah. a repeat, I guess, if you will. Absolutely. It'll be fascinating. Yeah, it's going to be great. Hopefully I'm around for it. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Julia, I want to know more about your research process because you are known for digging right in and almost embodying the, the, the people that you're writing about. And it's so thorough. So what was your research process for this book? And also, has your writing changed from when you lived in the States to when you now live in the setting of, of your books? Yeah, good question. Well, thank you. Thank you. That's incredibly flattering for a historical novelist to hear. So I appreciate that. First off, you know, this book was unique in that it's uh, further along in the 20th century than I've written so far. So I actually was able to interview a woman who was a debutante in 1958, and she was actually brought out and presented to the queen. She didn't end up having a full season, but she was able to give me a lot of detail about the training that they had beforehand, because there would have been, you know, very specific a very specific curtsy that they had to learn, which you would have gone to one specific woman, uh, Madame Vacani. And she, she told me about, you know, walking into the room where you're presented to the queen and to Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, as he was then. And there was a white dot on the floor where you would have stopped. And that's where you were meant to make your curtsy and sort of all the pressure that went along with that. And it was wonderful to get not only a bit of confirmation that the research that I had done to that point was accurate with what she was telling me, but she also was able to talk about sort of the feeling of doing that and what it was like as you young woman who really had been in school before then. And, um, you know, that was, that was her experience with the season. And then the season actually goes on beyond when the debutante presentation stops. So the presentation stopped in 1958, but they go on for a few more years after that in terms of the parties and what we would sort of think of as that defining debutante season. So these girls, um, still would have had a coming out party or a coming out ball. And I spoke to two women who had their season in 1964 and one had a very grand season. She had um, a coming out ball at the Ritz where the Beatles were scheduled to play, but they played oh. a couple of weeks before then uh, in the radio charts. And so they had to scramble to find another band. Uh, oh, wow. <laughs> and she also had a, a cocktail party as well, a coming out drinks and various other things. And so they were, these women were able to tell me things that I suspect they haven't talked about for a very long time because a lot of people hadn't asked them about what their experience was as a debutante or, you know, in some cases may not have even known. Um, One of them, you know, I picked up the phone to talk to her. I had her name as a recommendation from somebody else. And she said, well, I don't know if I'm going to be able to tell you anything useful. And then proceeded to just talk for 30 minutes. And you know, (laughs) detail about, you know, what sort of the the rules were around around boys and sex and, you know, uh, where she would shop and what her wardrobe was like. And I just thought, I'm just going to listen to you and take notes. It was wonderful. It's amazing. What a treasure trove. My goodness. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that that kind of um, sparks another question. Spark is the operative word here. I've heard from other writers, especially Kristen and Patty and Christy and, and, and even Mary Kay, too. As you decide what you're writing, these little things come up and they tell you a little bit more and they spark an idea in you that you're on the right path. Um, to do this. Did you have more of those beyond these interviews? 
I did. I was very fortunate. Um, the idea came from my mother, actually. She had randomly won this book that it has a couple of different titles, but the title that it has here in the UK is The Last Curtsy. And it's by Fiona McCarthy, who became an one of Britain's most eminent biographers. And she herself was a debutante in 1958. So she writes a history of the season in that year and, and describes in great detail what it was like as a debutante and then also what her other debutantes went on to do and sort of what their lives looked like afterwards. So I had a I had a pretty strong sense of going into, into the book because I had this one, you know, treasure trove of, of information in the biography in the in the memoir of the season. So I had this wonderful research source. Uh, but then finding little bits and pieces of things such as magazine articles in society magazines like uh, The Sketch and Tatler, uh, just confirming sort of how they would talk about the debutantes and sort of the all of the stuff around them, not necessarily how the girls themselves felt. And, you know, of course, every character has their own individual, unique uh, makeup that develops throughout writing the story, but sort of what society thought of these women, how it framed them. They were, in a lot of cases, they were 18. They really hadn't done anything except go to school. They didn't really know that many young men. And this was, it it sounds strange. It's very Bridgerton-like, you know, that, that these coming out balls were really meant to introduce them to young men. But it was very much the case that, you know, while you wouldn't necessarily have judged a girl's success in the season on whether she had an engagement, as you would have during Jane Austen's time during the Regency, you still would get the sense that it was about who she met, who her friends were, who her potential boyfriends were. And so sort of understanding how these young women were sort of framed in society was really, really interesting. And so I kept getting little bits and pieces, um, almost like breadcrumbs along the way. And some of them have absolutely made it into the book as well. Wow. 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 You know, Julia, this is kind of a broader question than just about this book. It's kind of more about your your work as a historical fiction novelist. Uh, to me, I think that one of the most fascinating things that historical fiction novelists do, especially those who specialize in writing about a particular country, is to serve almost as an ambassador for that country um, mm-hmm. to an American and to a worldwide audience, because we're sharing not just a specific story, but we're sharing a moment in time or, you know, things that are beautiful to us about that culture. Um, do you see yourself that way at all as sort of an ambassador for, for England or for England's history? I hope so. I, you know, I, I have this funny identity being an expat, but also being a citizen here. So I have ties to Britain, but I'm, I would say I'm not culturally British because I was raised American. So I have a a very strong appreciation and love um, for Britain. And of course it's my, it's my home now. Some, some say adopted home somewhere in the middle, maybe. (laughs) Uh, So I, I think that is the case. What I almost feel a bit more is that I'm, I'm sort of trying to convey that the things that you might know about what the things that you think you might know about women and what women did during various time periods may not actually be accurate, may not be accurate for every person. Um, and sort of shedding a bit of light on the fact that not women's women's experiences aren't monoliths. Every woman didn't have the same experience in World War II. Every woman didn't have the same experience, you know, even as a, as a debutante. And again, it's a small group of women who would have had the opportunity to be a debutante because it was a very sort of elite society thing. But even within that, there's different class, different personality, different experience that you're dealing with. And so my hope is that when people read my books, that they get a sense that maybe history is broader than they were originally taught or that they thought. And one of my favorite things is getting emails or messages from readers saying, you know, I had no idea um, yeah. that that even ha- existed. And I, one of the, one of the loveliest um, types of messages that you can get, I think as an author is when somebody has a personal connection to the subject yes. of your book and they feel like they've either learned something or you've illuminated something for somebody. So yes. my first historical fiction book is The Light Over London. And in that case, I'm talking about the anti-aircraft gunners, which um, some of which were women. They worked in mixed batteries with with men, and they were up there, you know, shooting down uh, Luftwaffe planes over Britain, over various parts of Europe. 
And I've had several people email me and say, you know, my mother passed, but she was a gunner girl. And I wish I had asked her about what her experience was like, because I had no idea the things that she was doing until I read your book. Or I've actually had women who were in the ATS, which is what those women were attached to, the the, uh, the auxiliary that they were attached to. And there's one woman who every book release emails me and says, you know, I hope you're still doing well. And she and I started talking because um, she was herself in the ATS. And so to get an email like that and to have her, to have her say, you got it right. (laughs) You sort of hold your breath on those emails and go, okay, it's a good one. Don't worry. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Tell me about it. I know, but you're right. That means so much to me too, to get those emails like that. And it's interesting because I think particularly writing about world World War II, a lot of the people we're reaching are people who do have a connection to that time period, yes. but that connection in many cases has been lost recently. And so reading a book set during that time period kind of helps connect some dots that they hadn't been able to connect before. I, I just, I, I think that's so neat too. Along those lines, you know, um, y- you mentioned kind of reminding people that women's experience might not have been, um, what they thought it was, or, you know, the experience of a woman during that war was not the same across the board. Mm -hmm. I think that one of the things that we do as historical fiction writers, that's, that is important is to expose people to experiences that are wildly outside of their own, which kind of forces them to look at things from a different perspective. Do you see that as part of what you're doing and and in a way, a way to do good in the world because of that? That's kind of how I see it. Yeah, absolutely. And I know, so for instance, your your most recent um, book, The Forest of Vanishing Stars, I think that's an that's an incredible example of that because you have a woman whose experience is just wildly different than really almost anybody else. That is a pretty unique experience, but you know, I think absolutely. And and I think one of the beauties of literature and, and reading in general is just, I know it's cliche to say that readers are sort of broader thinkers, (laughs) but I, I do think that's true because, you know, you, you, take on a story and you sympathize with characters. And even if they're not, even if they're anti, you know, anti-heroes or something along those lines, you sort of get a greater understanding of somebody's motivation and why they move through the world and make the decisions that they make, even in cases where there are characters who frustrate us or who we, in some, on some level, we would never be like, or we would never have an experience. Like, I think one of the wonderful things about reading is that it, it just introduces you to so many different types of people, types of cultures, experiences. And it's, it's really one of the reasons that I love talking to readers. I love connecting with readers. I love connecting with authors because I think there's an inherent curiosity there and want to just sort of explore the world a little bit more and to learn a little bit more about, about what's going on around us or what's happened in the past, what may be coming in the future. So I think it's a really, it's a really beautiful thing when, when all of that converges in a really great book. I agree. Oh my God. I so agree. And there's your Ted talk. <laughs> it was so good. PowerPoint presentation away yes, now. <laughs> I love it. I love it. But it's, it's so true. And, and especially true. I think over the last year and a half, two years, we are in what I think is a renaissance of women writers and their voices, voices that we would never have heard mm-hmm. before are coming to the forefront. And it's just a a plethora of amazing empathy and knowledge. And it's just great. It's uh, I just, I love being in it and, you know, hearing the debutantes point of view. What? Oh God, let's go. But <laughs> finally though, Julia, Kristen mentioned in your author interview series, ask an author with Julia Kelly. Can you tell us a little bit about it, how it got started and why <laughs> it's important to spotlight other authors? Absolutely. Well, I, I, I have to give credit where credit's due. I think Friends in Fiction is just incredible. And the community that you've built over there is amazing. And, and I think a lot of that also is just, it's such a joy seeing all of you together. You're, so, you're <laughs> such lovely people individually. You're so Thank much fun you. all together. Oh, and thanks. Yes, wow. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Well, and I, I have to say, you know, I was, I was in lockdown in England and we went through a series of lockdowns, of course. And one of the, the downsides of being an author who who is living in a different country than where their primary publishing market is. So I'm, I'm primarily published in the U.S. and in Canada, although, of course, I have other 
other books out in different places or books out rather in different places. One of the disappointments sometimes is that it's very difficult to get out and meet readers um, because of the international travel. And of course, when nobody could travel, that made it even more difficult. And so I, you know, I wanted to talk to other authors because I'm nosy and I thought it'd be fun. <laughs> and I used to be a journalist and I thought, you know, maybe I could dust off some of the old interviewing skills. And and Kristen was very kind and was my my very first guest. And uh, it was like you've been doing you. it for years. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, inherent nosiness. Um, but, I love that. That's so honest. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, and, and one of the things that I really love is obviously getting to talk about new books and all that. And I love talking about writing process with people and the business of writing. And so many conversations can take off in so many different directions. And I've just, it's just been a real joy to interview all of these wonderful people, most, mostly female authors, um, because I do mostly stick in historical fiction, which just, as you said, has an incredible number of just phenomenal women writers writing in it right now. Um, It's just been so much fun. And I have to say, it's also meant that I am much more current than I usually am on the books that I'm reading at the moment. (laughs) And that's been a joy too. (laughs) That's probably a pile of mile high, like all of ours. (laughs) Yes, it is. So Julia, thank you so much for joining us. To all of you out there, make sure to check out Julia's The Last Dance of the Debutante, which is out now. And head over to Facebook to search for and follow Ask an Author with Julia Kelly. You won't be sorry. Julia, it was so nice chatting with you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Next up, we welcome best-selling author Genevieve Graham to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Genevieve, it's wonderful to have you with us. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, we're thrilled. We are so glad you're here. Do you think you could start off today by telling us about Bluebird, your new historical fiction novel, which I believe will be out this April? I would love to. Yes, I, I, you probably have already spoken of it that I write Canadian historical fiction. And so this is another foray into parts of Canadian history that we don't really know much about. It opens up in World War One in one of the clearance center hospitals where my main character, Adele, is one of the nursing sisters. And the Canadian nursing sisters wore blue gowns and uh, were sort of flitting around, not only helping them heal, but also helping their hearts. And they they were sort of known as, um, you know, angels of mercy, but they were also known as bluebirds because of their gowns. And she is about to meet, hmm, who could it be? Possibly a romantic interest. Um, <laughs> she's going to meet a wounded, a wounded gentleman named Jerry who has been working or fighting um, underground as a tunneler. Yet, yet another thing I'd never, never heard of with uh with our military so he digs underground and uh he has been wounded and they're going to meet but then i'm going to go right into um 1918 so the end of the war where they both end up living in windsor ontario right across from detroit and they both get involved in the rum running campaign and uh turns into a bit of a a rough adventure Ooh, it sounds so good. I can't wait to read it. I know, I know, me too. Yeah, you just did a cover reveal recently, and the cover is absolutely gorgeous. I'm so excited about it. Yeah, oh, it's beautiful. So in just a minute, we're going to get into talking a little bit about why you write about Canada. But first, I wanted to ask you, why this time period in particular? I don't think I've, I mean, I've read about World War I, but just World War I and Prohibition are just such interesting things to write about and you they're such they're in such close proximity to each other um and it sounds like you've blended them together in such an interesting way here what made you decide to focus on that time period well i mean we've seen so many stories based on world war ii and i don't think that's over i think there's so many more world war ii stories that oh (laughs) my little bit of a spoiler my next book is going to be world war ii but I I, i love all different periods of history but I think early 20th is my favorite. That's my passion. And when I started, I live in Nova Scotia and around here, rum running and bootlegging is, is pretty widely known. Most people know somebody who did it and they were always telling me around here, you should write about them. But when I started to dig into it and learn about Windsor, Ontario and the funnel into Detroit and how exciting all that was, um, starting to investigate then I thought, well, this ties into World War One just before and all these poor, broken people coming back and having to fit into society. 
And somewhere along the line there, I just had to write about Spanish flu. Don't know why. (laughs) 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 So in that along the way. So it all just, it just falls together. And and when you find a part of history that deserves to be told, and this, I think, also, I'll admit that I was watching Peaky Blinders at the time. And the, the whole, that whole underworld is intriguing to me. I love it. It is. I do, too. Uh, and I, I am, I, I guess I'm, like a lot of other people, I love Detroit. And I especially love the river walk that looks over to Windsor. And I'm so excited to actually read a book about the history of that. Because I've often wondered, like, what's the connection and what's the thing? So this is intriguing to me and I'm sure many, many others. You're well known here in the States, but you are an absolute superstar in your home country of Canada. <laughs> you are. You're well known for taking lesser known chapters in history and creating beautiful drawn historic worlds around them. But in a way, you've become a national history teacher. You're teaching your Canadian brothers and sisters more about their past with pride and reverence. But the novels are so immersive and entertaining that the learning part feels almost secondary until they close the book and realize suddenly that they know something new and important about their own history. Did you set out to do that when you began your writing career? Or is it something that kind of came up as you went along naturally? It sort of came out of the blue, but so did my, my whole writing career came out of the blue. I never expected to be doing any of this. I started writing originally about Scott history. I was I was a, a groupie, obsessive groupie of Outlander and all things <laughs> to do with Scottish history. And I started writing all that. And, and it wasn't until my family and I moved here to Nova Scotia, which translates as New Scotland, that I I started looking around me and realizing that, yes, I know about Scottish history now, but I know nothing about this place where I live. And I, I need to learn, you know, who I am, first of all. And I am not a historian. I slept through history class, I, I, and it, it wasn't until later that I realized I really knew nothing about who we were, and I'm a historical fiction lover, but everything I've read has mostly been based in Europe or England or Scotland right. or in America, and not here. Um, so when I started looking at Canadian history, I started with right here in Halifax, the um, Halifax explosion of 1917, yeah. the yeah. largest man-made explosion the world has ever seen till Hiroshima, and we don't even know anything about it. So I started to look into that, and it caught on because, well, everybody west of here was like, I've never heard of that before, and people were saying, how come we never heard of that? And I, so more and more, I found more Canadian stories that moved on. And uh, Bluebird is my seventh um, of Canadian historical fiction. And there's there's no end in sight for the Canadian stories that we don't know. And so for me, it's I tell these stories because I need to learn about them selfishly. And then I see the books sort of like a film, which makes it easier for other people to learn alongside me. And I'm, I feel so privileged to be doing what I do. I never expected to be doing it. So. <laughs> That's so cool. I, 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 yeah. I, in doing my research on you and stuff, the people in Canada just look up to you so much. And yeah. you, you give them so many reasons to be fascinated and proud of their national heritage. How does that feel? It feels amazing. Um, I mean, again, coming from somebody who slept through history class, and I, I understand it. I think I think what I've given them is something that they have actually been wanting for a long time, but not knowing how to how to find it or how to ask. I remember in high school we talked about the War of eighteen twelve and the Plains of Abraham and the fur trade. Everybody remembers the fur trade up here, but there's so much more. And when I open up doors to these parts of our history. They just, they want to know more. Oh, what else did I miss? You know, what, why haven't I learned this? And now that I can, what more can I learn? And, and I love that it's not only inspired me to, to find out more, but the others, the readers are looking into it. And I never imagined I would be a teacher, um, not of history anyway. And so it's, it's, it's wonderful. I, and, and it's become very emotional as well because some of the stories have really touched people personally and it's really it's changed the way I look at history and and I I just feel so fortunate that's amazing you know you're so well known and so popular in Canada but of course you have a large worldwide audience too can you talk a bit about how your stories let you serve almost as an international ambassador for Canada 
Oh, I love that. That's beautiful. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I'm yeah. learning more about every time I read one of your books. I think I have a deeper appreciation for Canada and Canadian history. So I feel I've always felt very warmly about Canada, but I think it gives me more warmth because I have more knowledge. So I think that's a beautiful thing that you're doing for the world in representing your country that way. Can you talk a bit about that? Well, I think that um, by doing this, I'm showing people that we are actually up here. We are actually doing <laughs> right, stuff. Right. You know, there, I don't know what it is about Canadians. You know, we're always being said, oh, you're always saying sorry, sorry for that. <laughs> and, you know, are we apologizing for our history by not telling it? Who knows? But by doing this, I'm showing people that we are here. And while most of my books, more and more, they're starting to expand, but most of them started off here just exclusively Canada. But now I'm able to take Canadian people and movements and uh, events and and spread them across the borders and all different borders. Um, I wrote about the British home children in the United Kingdom. Um, Bluebird is going to cross over to the States and they're, they're all starting to expand. And I, I think it's just... We're so quiet up here. I don't really know why, because I could talk forever, but we're pretty quiet. And so now we're finally saying, okay, we actually have a pretty cool history. Like the Klondike Gold Rush, that's amazing history. There's so much there to talk about. So, yeah, it's, I, it's, again, it's an honor for me to be able to do this, but then to be able to extend a handout to, to international readers is a thrill. I love it. You know, one of the things we were talking to Julia about a few minutes ago was how one of the powerful things about historical fiction, when it's well done, like yours always is, is that it puts us in the shoes of someone in a different time and place who we maybe don't think we have anything in common with. And yet we discover through the power of story that across national borders, across generations, across all of these things that we think separate us, we actually have a lot in common because we're all human wherever we are in time and place, right? Genevieve, can you talk a bit about the power of books like yours to connect us and remind us all of our shared humanity, whether we're in Canada or elsewhere in the world? Oh, Kristen, you know this as well as I do about the power and the responsibility of historical fiction. I think it's so important that when we learn these stories, we tell them in a way that people will remember the history. And um, you were talking about how you identify with different people from all different times and all different places. A friend of mine said to me recently, I'm not really into like World War One kind of stuff because it seems so long ago. But all of a sudden, I feel like I'm there and I'm walking in the streets. And I think that's what we are doing. We're trying to bring everything into a space in people's mind where they feel like they're they're part of it. Um, I think historical fiction, for me, it all starts out sort of as a black and white photo of the basic history, which is not very approachable. You know, it's very distant in the past, doesn't really matter. And then I I love the metaphor of the the colorized photos. So as I do research, that photo, the black and white starts to fill in with all these colors and you start to see people's skin color and eye color and hairs and what they're wearing and all the different things that make them human. And the more you research, the more you fit in and the more your reader can fit in. And um, for remembering history, it's so important that it makes an emotional impact. And my, my really terrible metaphor is that if you see a car crash, you're going to remember it for a couple of days. But if you know somebody in that car crash, you're never going to forget it. So yes. here I am yeah. writing car crashes. Oh, wonderfully put. <laughs> wow. So I'm just always writing car crashes. For the- <laughs> <laughs> well, you do them very well. Yeah, yeah. So you, um, you've touched a, a bit about on your research process here, but there's also probably not a lot of historical documents to follow with us. So where do you find these stories and how do you decide to bring them to life in your books? Uh, yeah, and it's hard for me to find a lot of this stuff because I am not a historian. And so archives are a new thing for me and I'm always digging and faking it along the way. Um, (laughs) When I look for stories, I'm constantly following different blogs and different, you know, Instagram, Facebook, all these different places that are focused on historical places and periods. And um, I'll read through them all the time. And if something Canadian comes up or, or at least tying to Canadians, it'll come up and I'll start reading into it. So for me, it has to have a couple of, a couple of, a couple of factors to make it 
worth my while for for at least a year of research. Um, the first would be uh, it has to be something that we don't really know much about because I don't want to tell the same old story over and over again. Right. Um, it has to be something that hooks me emotionally because I will have to care about it if I'm gonna yes. I'm gonna put everything I have into it. But it also has to be a story in which I can insert a fictional, believable fictional story because there are a lot of amazing stories that need to be told, but you can't really put as much fiction into it believably. And, uh, and so those are sort of, that's my checklist for those things. Um, and then when I start to research, I sort of have different levels. I start with the basic, um, nonfiction books, go into the library. Librarians always know what I'm writing about before anybody else. (laughs) And and I'll come out with arms full of them. And then, then I get into the internet and I'll start looking for, you know, basic, um, web pages of people that, that focus on those specific things. And, um, I'll move along that way, digging as we all dig. And then I, I will go into the archives. I will brave it in there and I'll start digging there too. Um, but what I've recently discovered is the power of going onto specific Facebook pages and meeting the people who truly are connected with these stories. When I wrote The Forgotten Home Child, the, the British home children have an advocacy group that has a Facebook page of thousands and when I told them what I wanted to do, they they said, please, we'd love to tell the story. And um, I, I, I know at one point I had written a survey for these people. And the, the first page was asking the basics, name and date of birth and whatever they had there. But the second was, um, what do you remember about this home child from your ancestry? And what can you tell me about? Can you give me an adjective to describe those kind of things? Ooh, okay. And I thought I would get a couple of responses. I didn't think much of it. And I got over 200 in one week. Wow. And it, it just, it's a such lot. a treasure because these yeah. people are dying to tell their stories and they're just waiting for somebody to come along and say, let me in, tell me yeah. whatever you've got. I want to hear it. So um, it's become very, very personal, the research. Um, recently, Letters Across the Sea, I joined a group um, of, it has to do with the Battle of Hong Kong and the Canadians that were forgotten over there in POW camps. And when I spoke with some of the descendants of these people, you know, they're talking about their dads and their uncles and their brothers, and and it's so personal, and they want the stories out. So yes. I'm happy to tell them. That's so cool. And what what a great testament to the power of good on social media that is i just really we always hear about such horrible bad things but there's so much good there too and so i appreciate i appreciate it from that angle um so you have a tagline and it's called it's it says breathing life into history one story at a time can you Mm -hmm. talk about what that means to you and why you think it's important I think what it what it means is bringing to life those black and white photos. Uh, when I yep. wrote uh, Letters Across the Sea, I, I had seen the, the historical plaque uh, in downtown Toronto that relates to the Christie Pitts riot, which was one of the points that I discussed in that book. I had seen it. It's just a metal plaque. I've walked past it hundreds of times and never looked at it. And then when I started to read it, that plaque started to make so much sense. It started to pull so many ideas together and... And I started to see the people that are in it. And I think once you've got that history and you research it enough, it does bring it to life. And 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 it's, these people become important to the readers. They become um, you know somebody that you that you love or that you hate, somebody that you identify with. And and it just when you bring it to life that way through the research and through the characterization, they're not going to forget it. it. It's not it's not dead old black and white photos anymore. It's somebody who existed. That's awesome. Oh, my God, I like it. Yeah, isn't that great? So finally, finally, Genevieve, we wanted to talk to you a little bit about the historical fiction chats you do on your Facebook page with other authors. Can you tell us a bit about how and when you got started and what we can expect if we tune in? The silver lining of COVID for me was that before that came along, I would never put myself in front of a camera, not willingly, not voluntarily. And both uh, in nineteen or in 2020, when The Forgotten Home Child came out in March, uh, the world went into lockdown one week after my book came out. Mm-hmm. And it happened exactly the same with Letters Across the Sea in 2021. So one week, and I was staring through these these bookstore windows, just wanting to touch them and, and to speak with people. And 
I couldn't do a thing. And I started thinking about different ways I could reach around it. And my publisher had me read a chapter, which they shared. And I thought, well, yes, that way I'm reaching. And I started to work up the courage to do it. And then I, of course, was not the only one to have that happening. And there's so many people around me that were putting out books that nobody knew about. And I wanted to learn about these books and I wasn't going to be able to see them in bookstores. So I, I started to reach out and invited people like Kristen to come and chat with me. And I think what I, what I get to do in there, number one is I get to meet people that I just idolize and that like with meeting Kristen, it was like, I actually get to talk to her and we get to be friends. And it, it all came from this working up the courage to do it. Um, I've met so many amazing people. I think I have 30 of those interviews now and I have them on my Facebook page and on my YouTube. Um, And what I think I do a little bit differently is that uh, I'll introduce the author, but right away we launch into the first chapter of their book so that my listeners, my readers can um, get a feel for what kind of book this is going to be and is this going to pull me in. And it's it's more personal. We all know when the author is reading that yes. chapter because you can feel what they feel. And then we start talking about, you know, inspiration behind it. And we sometimes get into writing process. Sometimes we just get silly um, <laughs> because we are silly. Authors are silly. <laughs> we, spend, we, are. We, we spend far too much time being serious. So, um it's, uh, I really love doing it. And uh, I, I've been doing it with historical fiction books that are about to come out. And I haven't done it in a while. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to start calling people up and finding out what is yeah. coming up soon. Well, you it's, do such, uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's just, it's just a lot of fun for me. And I think um, my, I know my readers love it. They're just always waiting and waiting for to see the next one. Well, you do such a good job with it. And in fact, I should share that not only do you do a good job with the interview, but you also provide pronunciation assistance when people like me are reading our chapters for the first time and realize midway through that we don't know how to say some of the words that are in other languages. And Genevieve just steps right in. I do what I can. I aim to please, but I will admit that I have read my own chapters and walked right over the Gaelic. We're not going to touch the Gaelic, but I have to. Oh my God, Genevieve. Let me also ask. You know, you talked about what um, what you're getting out of talking to these other authors. You know, just the joy of being able to chat with them and and get to know them. But it's it's important work too. You're doing those authors like me a service as well because you're giving us a platform to reach readers. Why is it important to take this spotlight that you've earned through so much hard work and dedication and share it with other authors like me? Because other authors like you are the ones that got me to this point. And it's, I've, I think when I started out in this crazy business, I figured it was all going to be a big competition. You know, we'd be duking yes. it out for who's going to sell, <laughs> but it's not like that. And if you, if you're brave enough to reach out and put yourself out there, not only with your books, but in, in things like this where you're speaking your mind and your heart, then you're starting to show people that it's not a competition, it's a community and we can yes. all boost each other up. I've never felt so supported in my life as I have with the authors that I've gotten to know along the way. And I try really hard to speak with best-selling authors, but also ones that we don't know. And I've introduced quite a few that um, I had never heard of before. I just, I was going through lists that said uh, what's coming out soon. And I thought, Oh, never heard of that one. And it, maybe those people don't have a chance to to speak. And uh, I am fortunate enough to have a, a nice number of readers who will follow me and who will learn about these people. And I like to think that, uh, you know, they're, they're enjoying a little bit more fun, a little bit more recognition um, just by coming on and being brave enough to talk. Well, it it has absolutely felt like a benefit to me, both in terms of being able to reach readers, but also in terms of being able to just have a lovely conversation with you. I'm also very glad that we've gotten to know each other and gotten to be friends. Yeah, Yeah. I'm going to interject as a reader to all of us, (laughs) all of the appreciation I have for all of this, uh, the support. It was a surprise to me among all of the writers and and the support that they all give each other. And I I just feel like I'm the recipient of all this golden rain. Yes, yes. It's not just um, in my world of historical fiction, our world, it's other ones too. I have people, friends that are in the you know thriller and suspense genre that are always pushing each other's books and pushing our books. And 
it's just, it's a wonderful community to be in. You're right. And Ron, I have to point out that you're doing the same thing. You're not, you're not writing books necessarily like we are, but in, in your, in your work as a librarian and hosting this podcast and all of the other hosting work you do, you know, I think we're just all doing this thing that we love. And, and one of the right. wonderful things we're able to do with it is to spread the love about books and about this whole great literary community. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Agreed. Absolutely. And I think also doing these events brings the readers closer to us. They know that we're not just some yes. faraway name on the, on the spine of a book. We are, we're here and we are looking for input. And, you know, it's, I think it brings everybody together. You are absolutely wow. right. Well, we can't thank Genevieve and Julia enough for the work they do bringing history alive, for the time they spend promoting other authors, and of course, for joining us here today. I write historical fiction too, as we've talked about, and I have to say, I'm so proud to be part of a community that includes these two women because they're doing such wonderful work for readers and other writers alike. Thank you so much, ladies, for being such wonderful storytellers and such good literary citizens. It makes me proud to stand alongside you. Thank you so much, Kristen. Thank you for having us on here. Yes. And to all of you out there, we hope you'll run, not walk, to your nearest bookstore to pick up Julia Kelly's The Last Dance of the Debutante, and that while you're there, you'll also pre-order Bluebird. Please do also check out Ask an Author with Julia Kelly, which is its own Facebook group, as well as Genevieve's Facebook page, where she regularly interviews other authors. You can learn more about Julia at juliakellywrites.com, and you can learn more about Genevieve at genevievegram.com. Thank you all for tuning in to the Friends and Fiction Writers Block Podcast. If you're enjoying our conversations, please tell a friend. We will see you next time. Remember, you can always find all the books by every Friends and Fiction Writers Block Podcast guest, past and present, in the friendsandfictionbookshop.org shop. All sales placed there help to fund Friends and Fiction, and a portion of each and every sale goes straight into the pockets of indie booksellers nationwide. Since its inception, bookshop.org has raised more than $16 million for indie bookstores. Shop small, shop local, from the convenience of your screen with bookshop.org, and tell them Friends and Fiction sent you. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends and Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.